Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we must hurry because right. we have another packed interview this week. Yep. Uh, we have a, uh, a favorite that everyone's really been wanting to hear, David Flynn, yep. author of Temple at the Center of Time, a uh, new book out yep. uh, right now, a very hot book. And well, we without further ado, let's just go. Got to go right to him. So we'll be right back after this section interview, and we'll discuss it further on Future Quake. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And we have a special treat for you this week. We yes, have indeed. We have someone who has been requested by a large number of our listeners. Including Tom and, Bionic. And Futurians, that's right, and including yours truly here. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who we've wanted back for a long, long time. And mm -hmm. that person would be David Flynn, who is the author of the new, very hot book called Temple at the Center of Time. And we're going to talk today about the topic of recent revelations of ancient embedded knowledge and its impact on understanding the end times. And I cannot think of anyone better to have than you, Mr. Flynn, uh, to be back with us to talk on this topic. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm glad to be able to talk to you again. It's been a while. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a long, long period Let's of time. Let's just say it's been too long. I tell you, I, I know many of our, our uh, oldest listeners uh, will never forget the night back in the early days of our show, way back in 2005, our first year broadcast, when uh, you just called up one day and shared with us some of your fantastic findings just off the cuff in a just real impromptu phone call on air. And uh, it led to some very fevered calculations by me afterwards because I was blown away by what you shared with us. And uh, then we were able to get you on for a bona fide show shortly thereafter, uh, back in, I believe it was the summer 2005. And uh, if what I'm guessing is, is that some of that material actually made its way into your new book uh, that you've done. Uh, to start off our discussion, uh, could you bring many of our new listeners up to speed a little bit with who you are, David? and uh, briefly inform them with a little concise summary of your background, and just tell us who David Flynn is. Okay, well, the first thing I think that um, comes to mind when what I've done, I guess, would be the website that was started way back in 93, which seems insane almost to me as far as but we were, my wife and I were the first to start researching, I think, on the web, 
the biblical um, the basis or any you know any information at all that came out of the Bible concerning UFOs and the aliens abduction phenomena. Living here up in Montana, um, UFO sightings are are actually kind of a regular thing during you know the height of the Cold War and, and they're still hmm. ongoing. There's also the there's also the uh, cattle mutilation phenomena and all these strange things that go on right outside and, and around where I'm at. I uh, I put up, it was mostly a compendium of information that after a while started uh, building to the point where I could see a, a definite a trend, an actual connection between end time prophecy and what had been uh, what had been actually kind of lined out by Jesus himself talking about when he would come back, it would be exactly like the days before Noah and the ark and go back to Genesis mm. And you can find out that there really is a strange connection between the Nephilim, these uh, giants of old, and uh, the alien and the UFO phenomena. You, so that you, was what I did first on that. Were you one of the very oh, wow. first people to put two and two together on that? You're the first that I came across that did. I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I never read, you know, Pember. Uh, right. A hundred years ago, and he had talked about this. Um, and he would even talked about uh, pre-Adamic civilizations right. in some of his books. And a, his watershed and, uh, book, like Earth's earliest stages. Yeah, and that was right. and that was something that that I came across um, later, actually maybe a couple of years after the, the website had gone up. But um, contemporary uh, theologians and eschatologists hadn't really touched the subject much. I guess it's because when you think about uh, the amount of information that's gone into UFO phenomena, at least in this country, it would make it very difficult to, to look credible. Mm-hmm. You have a church and then, you know, large numbers of people, you know, paying you to help guide them along and then decide, okay, oh, we're going to talk about UFOs and nobody believes in this, but I do, and this is really an important subject. I was in the right place to be able to do it because I, you know, I'm not running a church and I'm, uh, I'm you know, I, I can just do whatever I want and if people don't like what they read, they just go to another you know, website and so it gives, it gives me a lot of freedom. But <clears throat> from that point, I decided to put a book together because it was just too compelling to just leave on the web mm-hmm. and I, I had a book published in 2002, um, Steve Quayle, who, who also is in Montana, a publishing company, and he put that together, and that book was Cydonia, Secret Chronicles of Mars. Now, that book's a real collector's yeah. item, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I had to really chase one down to get a copy. You got a copy? Oh, yes, oh. And but it's something that people treasure when they get a, get a copy of it, because... Uh, there's nothing like it that's ever been written before, to my knowledge. Yeah, the Gilberts talk about that very, very highly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, it's uh well, uh, thanks. I I kind of wonder sometimes because uh it, it didn't sell very well at first, and then you know over the years I, I it kind of built this cult following. kind of way. Po- posthumously, you'll be extremely popular. <laughs> Hopefully, your your heirs will rake in all the dough yeah. that you deserve yeah, you in this yeah. life. Well, um, and then I got a chance to talk to some of the leading ufologists after I went down to Roswell, and uh, I did some talks about the book, Cydonia, and I met uh, Richard Holbrand, who um, actually hadn't really contemplated the idea that there could be a Christian out there who would still accept the UFO phenomena as, as uh, being actual, or bonafide, and, and then be able to explain it from a biblical perspective. And so then he set up the Godman Key Conference at the University of Michigan, hmm. and there was uh, Hugh Ross and Dr. Mike Heiser, and oh, I forget the name of the other, there's a philosopher there too, and Holbrand himself, and then who I don't have a PhD, but I, I guess because I had that unique perspective, I was able to at least with the book that he, you know, inside on that he read, he actually started looking at this from uh, ancient his history and and actually started taking into account what the Bible might have to say about it. Um, 
not just the UFO phenomena, but also the, uh, the structures that may be artificial on Mars, especially in the Cydonia region, and the name Cydonia for the book. So from that point, I started uh, doing more talks and really looking at the phenomena uh, because there were a lot of eschatologists that started standing up and taking notice and realizing that the pattern was building and that it was it was uh, prophetic. Mm-hmm. So then with this latest book, taking a, a turn away from that slightly and looking at what Newton did when he came to his prophetic work, and I opened up an incredible can of worms with this one because I didn't realize how much work he had done on prophecy. I found that most of the works that he did were never published. There was only one in his lifetime, and that was observations on the prophecies of Daniel and the Apocalypse and John. Mm-hmm. But out of all the works that he did in natural philosophy or science, as we later call it, um, he did two-thirds, he did twice as much with uh, prophecy. And I think part of the reason they weren't published is because he himself uh, was a Unitarian, and in the Trinitarian mm-hmm. Church of England, that was a heresy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, being able to be true to his, his own belief system and have these things published, I think, would have uh, been kind of dangerous for him. So he just left them, and uh, they were taken up, I think, in the 30s by a collector named John Maynard Keynes. And then later, those were bought up by... Uh, As in uh, the John Maynard Keynes, the uh, uh, economist? The economist? I... I I believe so. I, he's he's a, a biographer of Newton, one of the first, and he brought to light a lot of uh, the information of Newton's dabbling in alchemy mm. um, and also, also uh, prophecy. But the reason he was doing these things, I think, is he was trying to find the key to uh, to some lost knowledge, the understanding that he believed that uh, there was some way of understanding the universe science and, and prophecy and all knowledge that existed um, in a kind of a holistic and a simple way. Mm-hmm. And the key to it, and he was searching for it, and he, uh, he definitely, you know, he was definitely a Christian, and he definitely believed the Bible was infallible. Mm-hmm. And wrote Hebrew, he was actually taught uh, Hebrew by one of the first persons to translate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, an actual a rabbi in, in uh Cambridge, um, taught in Hebrew, and he had to translate it as a Mishnah into English. And so, so Newton paid incredible attention to Jewish sages because he believed that they had somehow uh, lost key to interpreting prophecy. And in turn, he thought that would also uh, clarify his scientific theories. Now, he thought this was more important than even his other findings, like those little things, like uh, law of gravity yeah. and those kind of things like that. He considered this really a more important task that he took. Well, he the biographers talk about his, his uh, two miraculous years when he formulated almost all his scientific theories. And this was only when he was 17 and he graduated from, from Trinity at Cambridge in 1665. And it was the year of the plague in London. Mm-hmm. And 100,000 people died in the plague. And then the year later, 1666, the Great Fire of London occurred. There were two comets that ran 1664-65 and then 65-66, exactly a year apart. And there was this great uh, expectation that the year 1666 would somehow fit into um, our Revelation talks about the Mark of the Beast. There was actually books written on it. Um, and during that time, also, when uh, England had gone through a series of civil wars, there was no uh, monarchy, there was no king at the time, and uh, Cromwell was actually running things. And mm-hmm. he was very close, he had the you know, Cromwell had the ears of uh, the fifth monarchist. These guys were a group of, of theological politicians who believed that, according to the prophecies in Daniel 4, you were in the fifth, or they were in the fifth kingdom, 
according to Daniel's statue with head of gold and shoulders of silver and then brass and so on, you get down to the feet, and that's the fifth iron and clay uh, uh, monarchy of the world. They believe that they're mm-hmm. going to see the second coming of Christ, and they um, designed most of the economic, political sort of policies at that point when Newton was actually going to school around this idea, this belief system. And so this this was so strongly intact in, in, in the country at the time, the belief that the Messiah would come, that Newton himself had written about thinking he had been given the power to open Daniel's book, the prophetic understanding, the clarity of it was given to him. And then he believed that the laws of the universe were one and the same with the laws of Moses. And so by breaking down and understanding how how the law of Moses worked, he even looked at it geometrically, he looked at it numerically, he could understand more closely when the timing of the second coming would arrive and, and the chronology of all the anti-prophecy. We really worked hard with that, uh, doing this sort of thing. Joseph Mead was his predecessor, and he wrote the the key to the apocalypse, key to prophecy, and he spent a great deal of time going over what Mead had done and tried to understand when, when according to uh, the chronology from all the, all the works in the Bible concerning the temple and, and its, its destructions, um, how it would fit, how would the temple be rebuilt, how would, the, how would this all come to pass because the temple seemed to him to be the backdrop of all end-time prophecies. And he says this over and over again, the temple, and not only the temple, but the Ark of the Covenant, were the backdrop of every scene in Revelation, John, as mm-hmm. they're writing the prophecies. Plus that important passage in Ezekiel as well, too. Yes, it, it, it's, uh, it's, throughout, it's throughout many of the end-time prophecies, and Newton was able to make a really clear connection between the idea that if, if, the, if the laws... Of, of Moses written by in God's own hand, the creator of the very universe, had made uh, uh, had made these moral absolutes for people to follow. There would still be somehow embedded in them uh, the absolutes or, or, or laws of creation, hmm. and he believed they were both connected. And the only way he could actually search further that he believed was to actually figure out somehow if there was a microcosmic sort of uh, 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 blueprint in the way the temple was designed or the way the tabernacle was designed. And the thing that really almost shocked me was that in his book, Chronologies of Ancient Kingdoms, he writes about the Assyrians all the way to the Romans, and he talks about the reign of each one of the kings in each one of these, these kingdoms. And he gets to when Babylon falls, and Medes and Persians take over, he inserts diagrams of the Temple Solomon. And goes to all this great length to map out exactly how the uh, uh, courts were, um, the proportion of everything, um, according to the sacred cubit that he believes, and John Grease is uh, a contemporary with him, who had actually gone to the Great Pyramid in Egypt and tried to measure that to get an uh, understanding of what the Great Pyramid's uh, function was um, with respect to the diameter of the Earth, actual measurements of the Earth. They actually mm. knew that there was something there. Mm. Um, but he inserts his picks, this diagram, this blueprint of the temple, and what is suggesting in his book about chronology of all the ancient kingdoms, 
was it was somehow connected to the temple, that dimensions of the temple somehow could under, uh, uh, actually explain time. And the more I looked at his work, the more I realized that he was onto this, this is the, the actual uh, rest of his, his work, to try to somehow decode what was going on with the temple dimensions and what was going on with uh, uh, this microchasm of, of the universe that he believed in. The actual dimensions were uh, actually conveying. And so, if you look at what the Jewish sages say about the temple, and actually even the place it was set, where the Holy of Holies was, the foundation stone under the Holy of Holies, which is still on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, they claim that that stone was actually built and actually uh, in existence before creation itself, which is a real strange thing to think um, any Jewish sage would believe, because, you know, you know that creation starts and it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of connected with this idea of the Big Bang, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everything was and, but the strange thought is that if the Jewish sages believe that this foundation stone or the Ark of the Covenant that was created before everything why did they think that mm-hmm. and that so it's a marking it's a marking stone that was preset uh, sort of a, a zero well, point or axis well yeah it's, it's interesting if you look at it, it messianically I mean mm-hmm. you know you talk about the foundation stone of Christ and the you know, the Word uh, has made flesh, is Christ the one who created everything, just like in the Gospel of John, the first part of the Gospel of John explains, uh, through him everything was made, so he existed before time, he existed before space, creation. And so, metaphorically, you could think of the um, foundation stone for the Ark of the Covenant, which is also metaphorically mm-hmm. that stood, would also be addressing the same thing, but the Jews don't recognize the Messiah that way. <laughs> they, they look at this stone as actually a place where God somehow intervenes in time, where he comes through time itself and exists eternally. Therefore, if he's, he's actually uh, marking this spot on the Temple Mount where the Holy of Holies was with his presence, it would be an, an eternal presence, and mm-hmm. just outside of time and, be, and before creation. And that's how they... Was, and that's what they're actually thinking. So it was a permanent door rather than a temporary door. He may have used it various times in history around the globe. This was the and regular front door. Was actually, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so this would have been like the front door he would normally use for entrance and exit into the portal of our world. It, it is. Um, that's what. That is what is. Uh, I think the Jewish system and mm-hmm. esoteric sort of realms, and um, Newton definitely believed this. And where he focused, his major focus was um, internally, in the internal architecture. I don't, I don't think that he believed it might have some sort of effect externally or, you know, dimensionally outwards from the temple. He may have, but I don't think he was able to quite pin that down because the actual quantity of feet to, uh, you know, degrees. Of, of the Earth, um, the Great Circle of the Earth, or the actual circumference mm-hmm. of the Earth, mm-hmm. wasn't able to actually pin down exactly how great that was. That was something that was um, actually in flux at his time, and he, and he went to great lengths to try to figure out how big the Earth was. Um, not knowing exactly would make it very difficult to actually calibrate how that location of the Temple Mount was in relationship to other 
interesting points on the earth. Brother David, let's uh, if you don't mind, just for because it sounds like we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of our sure. of our premise here. Uh, can you go back because we may have some skeptical people listening here on Christian radio that are not used to your work in the past or. Uh, um, you know, maybe you're a little skeptical about going in these kind of directions. Uh, you mentioned a few theologians at the time of Newton who were interested in this, in these tools, these techniques, mathematically or otherwise, as a way to understand and unlock uh, what God had put in for us in the apocalyptic literature to understand. Are there any other theologians that come to mind to you uh, between their era and ours? Who've also used these kind of uh, techniques as well that are, you know, that are highly regarded. I know a few come to mind with me, but are there any that uh, come to mind with you that have shown the the, the usefulness, the utility of, of considering these things? One, one good one would be, would be uh, James Strong. Okay. And, uh, of Strong's Concordance. Yeah. And uh, really? then there's Joseph Pepper. And uh, Spice. I'm trying to think of his. Uh, Bollinger. Yeah, E.W. Bollinger is one I was thinking of who uh, yeah. wrote Number in Scripture and Witness of the Stars and a highly regarded person using these types of techniques. Yeah, and uh, their their scholarship is just incredible. When you read what they what they've done, you know, sometimes over a hundred years ago, you see that they were able to simultaneously address you know these scientific points. Fit them into prophecy impeccably, and also defend themselves. And it is apologistic sort of um, uh, refrain that goes throughout their books. They're saying, "It's this isn't numerology. This is something that uh, is an extent in the Bible throughout the Bible." I mean, if you look at the actual um, in the end time scenario, the idea that there'll be seven years of Daniel's last week before the Messiah returns, mm-hmm. and and uh, Interpreted as seven years, with 360 days each, so you get 2,520 days of of uh, uh, this countdown, which again, ostensibly, with the return of um, sacrifice on the Temple Mount, mm-hmm. and, and we know that's you you can find out that that's uh, pretty clear that the countdown begins when that actually takes place because it's interrupted mid, at the midpoint by son of perdition, this Antichrist, by stopping the, the sacrifice system. Right. But that number, 2,520, is 7 times 360. But interestingly, if you take 360 and divide it by 7, you get the rise over run of the, uh, the Great Pyramid, 51 point, I think, or 6. Well, now, now speaking of the Great Pyramid, oh. I, was, I was going to mention this, David. Didn't Newton also try to use some estimates of the dimensions of the Earth by... Um, certain information he could derive from the pyramid itself. Yeah, he, he actually wrote a dissertation on the sacred cubit that's derived from the Great Pyramid. And uh, you can actually go online to the Newton Project and read part of it. Um, I, I guess one thing he couldn't determine at that time that I think was since found out was that isn't there a very, very slight curvature to the walls, the, the the angular walls on the outside, and that it's equal to the radius of curvature of the Earth? Well, what was found out was uh, that the pyramid, the, the radius of it, was actually in, in let's say, there's a, 
there's actually a calibration system inside the, the uh, pyramid itself, and there's this raised boss, which is <clears throat> right before you get to the king's chamber. It's supposedly a little less than um, our standard inch. And so by measuring with this pyramid inch around the exterior of the, uh, the base of the pyramid, you would get um, a figure that would be equal to the number of days in a year. But if you would measure it using the, uh, the indentation, very slight indentation, you would get the side reel uh, uh, number of days in a year. There's also the anomalistic days in a year. So there would be actually the solar year, the side reel year, and the anomalistic year, all encoded in that one uh, uh, exterior of the pyramid because of because of the indentation. And but when Greaves went down to actually explore the pyramid, it was so covered with um, detritus around it and the sand blowing around at that time that it was really hard to get accurate measurements. Yeah. Now it's you know, all with lasers, but it was depending on him to bring back the information so that he could uh, so he could clarify exactly uh, how how great the Earth was, how, what the size of the Earth was, because mm -hmm. he needed that for the calculations. Well, let me close, let me close down our, our our question just again for some of our skeptical listeners. For we well, now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of your your, your calculations here. Uh, you mentioned the term numerology. And people still may see that, hey, you're, you're fiddling with numbers here. Uh, are you sure that's okay to do? Can you explain to them what the difference is in numerology and the kind of techniques you and other biblical scholars use in, in taking information well, out of the Bible? Yeah, as, as I understand it, numerology is, is uh, replacing God's Word with um, just uh, uh, you're trying to fortune tell. You're trying to, 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 to tell the future. This was manipulation of numbers. It can say birth dates, for example, and, <clears throat> and uh, uh, dates in, in, for certain events in the past and the future, and then trying to sort of project somehow, apart from God's prophecies, what's going to take place in the future. Um, biblical numerics, on the other hand, uh, upholds and enhances what is spoken in the forward text of the Bible. And prophecies are often in, in, embedded with certain numbers that repeat over and over again because they're, they're standard. They're actually, they show up um, and have a symbolic meaning. Like, for uh, example, the number five, the symbol of grace, you can actually find that the, uh, the text in both Hebrew and Greek, uh, when it's uh, addressing uh, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, will actually have multiples of five in it. Um, you can see that there's other numbers too. Twelve, twelve is one of the most obvious one. We have twelve, yeah. uh, uh, twelve tribes of Israel. We have twelve apostles. It's, it sort of shows of, a completeness of, witness, of, right? of go our, yeah. our government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, governmental perfection. Right. Yeah. And so those are pretty obvious. But you know, I, I've always seen that when, when people apply numerology in in this fortune telling, they'll, they'll use it much how people use astrology. Well, they'll, they'll take some kind of uh, random numbers, series of numbers, and apply it to individuals. Like, what, what yeah. is uh, Mr. Smith? What is going to be, what's going to happen to you tomorrow, or five years from now, or whatever like that? And they personalize it to individual things, which is a totally different thing than uh, taking what God is, when God has written his own story, and he chooses to use certain numbers and certain stories 
to to give extra information to us to understand the depth of a of a topic, and basically what you and other theologians are doing is just simply uh, digging the riches of what he's placed in this in this holy scripture for all of us, as far as the the whole testimony for all of us. Yeah, I I think also that what is mostly done in this book, what Newton had actually stated too, is that you find these numbers would uh, would actually verify the historical accounts that were in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that it would, uh, by validating it, it would, you know, it would lift it into this, you know, into the scientific world for him. Um, it would be able to be uh, actually embraced by those people who weren't so um, mystical or religious. When the, when the actual scientific revolution took place, it was coming out of a, a sort of a mystical, um, religious kind of quasi sort of. Uh, realm where people were trying to understand and 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 uh balance out these ideas that were kind of magical with newfound um, empiricism and nowadays i think that has to be accomplished even to a higher degree because if you're looking at the end time scenario which has been addressed in in, in one of the most symbolic books and one of the most spooky books that you can find in the bible which would be revelation you have to be able to understand that it really, it, it is hap- it, it is going to happen. It's a reality. Mm-hmm. How are we going to understand it from the you know, the verses of, of the Bible? How are we going to actually resolve it with what we see around us right now? And I think that's what Newton was trying to do, was attempting to do. And I think basically that's what the book is trying to do too. The mm-hmm. time. But you know, if you're looking at that question of uh, you know biblical numerics as opposed to numerology. Right. Numerics is going to uphold the Bible and the Scripture at the time. Well, th- thank you for covering that, David. I yeah. appreciate that. I didn't mean to distract you, and I just want to make sure our, our all our listeners of, of, of various backgrounds can feel comfortable with, with what you've done, because I know your work has done nothing but glorify Jesus Christ, and it certainly helped enrich my faith uh, from, from what you've done, and it's very important. So, so you began to look at this work on, on, on measurement with Newton and a... Um, uh, this whole concept of a uh, sacred inch and leading to a sacred cubit. I don't mean to jump ahead in the story. If we miss some key points there, go back. But I do know that's something that falls is a, is a key part of your story, correct? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, this goes right back then again to Newton's only uh, prophetic work that was published, and that's the Observations of Daniel and St. John. And when he focuses on both of those uh, prophets, he says that they're they're almost like mirror images of each other, one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament, both addressing primarily the second coming of Christ, and both being probably the most time-oriented prophets in each uh, in each testament. And he was focusing, he was trying to understand how Daniel and John both realized this timeline in the future. With the backdrop of the temple, in Daniel's case, though, he was praying towards the temple when he was actually given information by these uh, angels um, to to uh, write his prophecies. And in, in the case of John, he was taken into this realm of heaven where the backdrop was the temple. And so he focused on this. And going to chronologies of the ancient kingdoms that Newton wrote, having inserted the temple right in the middle of the reign of Babylon, in Persia, that is where the key actually hits, because 
that's where Daniel was. That's where Daniel had made his prophecies. That whole scenario of the fall of Babylon was, uh, it actually occurred the night that Belshazzar was having uh, a great feast. And these things would go on for, for days and days. Um, and at the point where uh, all the the, uh, the attendants of his party were very well inebriated, he brought out the temple treasures and the, and the goblets from the temple that had been ransacked by his, his uncle, Nebuchadnezzar, and started toasting his gods with it. And when he did this, this disembodied hand came and wrote on the wall many, many Tekel Parsing, which is Aramaic. And Daniel was the only one who could interpret what was on the wall. And in fact, he'd actually been made head of the court astrologers and, and magi in Babylon. Still being, uh, uh, still being a Jew, still being you know a, a religious Jew and a prophet, here he has been set in this, this place above all these uh, pagan astrologers because he had the most understanding. And that was actually brought to Belshazzar's attention by his wife, that Belshazzar uh, had forgotten her, was too inebriated to understand. But the amazing thing about this is that is a time signature. The actual writing on the wall is not only what it was metaphorically, as Daniel interpreted as the kingdoms weighed and divided and given to the Medes and Persians, you can actually find uh, forms of the name Media and Persia in many, many Tekel Parsi. The Parsi means to divide Persia from the same from the same exact root. But they're monetary units. And Amina is, if you look at the very basic measurement uh, for money it's a, in, the, in Babylon, it was a gera. And a gera was like a penny to us. So Amina was a thousand geras. And Peres, or uh, the word for the Persia, actually means to divide. So if you divide Amina, you have 500. And a tekel is just like a shekel, even today, it's 20 geras. So uh, the number is 2,520. Let, let me just mention that um, in, in my background research of doing this information, which you had shared with our show you know, many years ago in your work, uh, there, is a, there is a guide earlier in Ezekiel where actually th this is all temple money, and it actually gives the conversion rates in the t in the uh, earlier chapter in Ezekiel. So you can go back and verify what uh, Brother David is telling us right now, and you can actually translate it all very easily back into the these minus and shekels into the the garas uh, that you're talking about. So you have independent verification there, right right there in the same general books of the Bible. Yeah, and you can find in, in James Strong's exhaustive concordance in the back. He'll he, he has it all lined out, and uh, you can find this for yourself, that it was exactly that number, 2,520. Now, that's the number of days in the uh, 70th, 70th week of Daniel. It's repeated right. again in Revelation, and so this is what Newton was on to. But the most amazing thing from this is we know the date of the fall of Babylon was 539 B.C., 530, 539 B.C., just you know, within that ballpark range. Cyrus the Great supposedly met the Jews back into... Uh, Jerusalem, around 538 B.C. And what's an amazing thing is, if you think about the rebirth of Israel in 1948, Newton actually predicted this uh, in, in his uh, uh, observations of, of prophecies of Daniel and John. He said that he believed that, that Israel had, or, had to be uh, reborn, and that the Jews had to actually own the real state where Jerusalem is, for the temple to actually be built again. 
And he thought that it would happen sometime in the future. He didn't know how, but he thought some other nation would probably be friendly to them and, and cause this to actually happen. Um, in 1948, it actually became a reality. That was 2,486 years after the fall of Babylon. What's an amazing thing is, if you take that, that number, 2,486, uh, and multiply it times 365 and days a year, and divide it into 360, which is what you see the prophetic years actually meted out in, in uh, the Bible, you actually see it over and over again. And you see it again in Revelation, this idea that a year long after mm-hmm. you end up with 2,520, 360 day years from the fall of Babylon to the rebirth of Israel. So this number stands out again as something uh, extraordinary. And in fact, I've, I found a metrologist, uh, one guy, Flanders Petrie, who actually wrote a book called Inductive Metrology. He spent decades working out ancient measurements and finding out what the different national, uh, the national cubits were from, from uh, Babylon, from Syria, from, from uh, Egypt, the sacred and profane for each of these countries, and especially for Israel. And he found that the sacred cubit in the earliest times, the time of Moses, was equal to 25.20 inches in our modern calibration. Uh, Brother David, if I could elaborate just a little bit further on on the story in Daniel that you just shared. When you told me that before on air, just sort of as an aside uh, on our our show when you called in once, and I became fascinated with that. When I went back in Bishop Usher's uh, information to show their best estimates and other references I found on when the actual fall happened when Cyrus entered the city, um, and I projected that forward, in fact, I was able to put it there in mid-May 1948, the time of the founding of Israel, using a 365-day. And what I found curious is, is is why to use that when I look at a whole different technique, taking someone like Grant Jeffrey, where he looks at the uh, prophecy of Ezekiel where he had to lay on one side for 360 days and the other for 70 for the sins of Israel and for Judah. And then he uses this technique after the original 70 years of punishment. Uh, they still were not repentant, so the, the penalty was 70 times se- or 360 times 7. From, from the date of when they were released until it goes forward, he also ends up at the same point using a 360-day calendar. So whereas you use it from a whole different technique looking at uh, the Cyrus, when Cyrus entered the city, it arrives at the same date as when Grant Jeffrey looks at the return but also uses a 360 instead of 365. And I thought there has to be some kind of connection here between the two. So then I began to look at who originated the 365-day calendar. Do, do you know who, who began that? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, it, Cyrus. Cyrus, king of Persia, was the inventor of the 365-day calendar. Really? And, in fact, uh, I found on Iranian site that was one of their great contributions to civilization was King Cyrus in an in a Iranian website talking about the glories of Persia, was that he invented that. So when I, when I presuppose trying to put my David Flynn thinking cap on, is that while Israel was under the domain of the calendar of, of whoever they were subject to, that's when those prophecies are, are according to that calendar, whereas once they were free and allowed to go to their own land, they reverted back to the 360-day calendar. But in either case, both of them end up with the same endpoint. 
in this in this calendar system, it's, it's an amazing thing because wow. you go back between the 365 and the 360, you'll find amazing uh, uh, numbers that will show up in in, in prophetic symbols. symbols, and that's actually in the, especially in Revelation. You know, 144,000, the number 666, 2,520, and it's half, 1,260. Um, I've actually looked at uh, Bible, the Unger's Bible Dictionary for the altitude of, of uh, Mount Zion, mm-hmm. where the temple is, and they say it's 2,520 feet above sea level. Um, <laughs> and there uh, who supposedly measured the, the, the circumference of the Earth using Greek stadia, came up with a number 252,000 stadia for the circumference of the Earth. And the way he measured it was from, he, he, he knew the distance between Syene and Alexandria in Egypt as uh, at 5,040 stadia. Well, 5,040 stadia is twice 2,520. And it's such a big deal about 2,520 that I thought that Newton would have figured this out. And he actually said, and this is a statement that he makes, that he thinks that the ancient Greeks had a much easier system of, of reckoning the distance of the Earth than they actually conveyed, or, or, or even what Eratosthenes conveyed. But he never actually pinned it down. I think I have, which is actually, it sounds like solutions to grandeur, but here it is. If you take 2,520 times pi, you get the actual mean diameter of the Earth, 7,916. You can go to, you can actually go to Google and type in 7,916, and it'll show up as the mean diameter of the Earth in statute miles. In the case you want to find the circumference of the Earth, the mean circumference or the average circumference of the Earth, you multiply that number against 7,916 by pi, and you get circumference. So not only is the number repeated 2,520 repeated over and over again in the Bible which is basically 7 times 360 but you can actually find it in the actual dimension of our Earth and the moon at apogee its farthest distance from us in its orbit around the Earth is 252,000 statute miles now that repeats itself throughout um, uh, not just the dimensions of the Earth, and now we're kind of actually going out into uh, the solar system. You can find this dimension in time also, and this is where the book focuses. Because when I started thinking of uh, the Earth is actually being a created thing, but if the actual Temple Mount is somehow uh, apart from it, apart from from creation and apart from time, as the Jewish sages say a place where God in eternity is actually dwelling, there may be time and space from around it, like Newton suggested, at least in, in internally, maybe externally there would be some cor- correlation. And that's the case. Because if you go from Babylon, it fell in 539 B.C., and you extend a line to Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is, you find that it's 539 statue miles away. And so now, it's now, let me make sure under, people understand statute miles. Statute miles are a ratio of the actual size of the Earth. So there, it's no relic of some kind of uh, unique um, uh, measuring unit system of any culture or anything like that. It's sort of transcendent and cultureless, correct? 
Well, it was it was actually set by statue by Queen Elizabeth in the 1500s with her help from Macatter and Dr. John Dee, who was an incredible occultist. Right. But through the work that uh, Macatter, who you saw the Macatter um, diagram map, um, a great uh, a great traveler, navigator, uh, he was probably working from the works of the Greeks. And he had established this this uh, distance uh, according to the ancient uh, system. And there's a lot of ways of actually looking at how he came up with how many feet within a statue of miles, 5,280 feet. Well, but that's, that's interesting. You, to, you mentioned John Dee because he reports that he, you know, he had a, uh, a scrying partner who went to try to get information from angels. Uh, he was sort of hitting up his limits of being able to get the limits of what they could get in science, and he wanted to get angelic information. And I wonder if any of this, because I know sometime after this era of his time, he got to be a marvel in navigation and was really set the stage for discovering the New World, which I'm sure if you had a key to unlock the uh, the dimensions of the Earth, that would certainly help you in navigating remote parts of the globe. So do you think all this is connected to maybe a supernatural source of reintroducing I, I, I think this? it is. I definitely think it is, and uh, and the reason I I think it is is because you'll find the same um, base of the sacred cubit fixed in in uh, uh, these ancient systems. They they work either in stadia or they work in nautical miles, and they work also in statute miles. And mm-hmm. so what happened is that that calibration of the inch was kept as close as possible to uh, fitting. How the sacred cubit would be fit into 25.20 inches. The reason, the reason for that is because that number is how the universe is connected, or through which the universe is connected. Um, even the number of days of creation fit that number, seven times 360. You know, you know, your Earth revolves seven times in 360 degrees. You end up with 2,520 degrees total. It's, it's a statement of time. It's a statement of, of our. Uh, how the Earth is actually situated in, in, in the solar system and creation itself. Mm-hmm. So taking this idea again, <clears throat> once you have really clearly established this, this isn't something that you have to work, you know, trigonomet- with trigonometry. You can actually go with Google Earth and they have a ruler tool, and you can set it up to either statute miles or nautical miles or meters or what have you, and you can, you can put your base point on the Temple Mount and extend it to where Babylon is, Actually, in the center of Babylon. Actually, you can put it to the uh, the old ruins of Belshazzar's temp, uh, uh, his actual his actual uh, uh, throne room, and you can find that it's 539 statute miles, which is also in the date in BC that the uh, the temple fell. Now, what's actually happening then is you're anchoring to a place that's metaphorically a symbol of the Messiah, mm-hmm. the Holy of Holies, the foundation stone, the temple itself. Jesus even used it metaphorically, you know, as, as his body. Right. For this temple, in a few days I'll raise it up again. So, you know, he's, it's his word. He says the temple is a metaphor for him. So the just calendar like... that we're stuck on right now is also anchored to him by the idea that, you know, the Christian era is in the, day, the year of our Lord from his birth. And now there's been 2,008 years. But... Not you know people quibble over where where actually the birth occurred. The fact is that this is the calendar we've been using since uh, since well Julian 
the Julian calendar and then it changed from the Gregorian calendar. But we have this the date, all of our events with relationship to uh, uh, Christ's birth. And in the modern times, we're going to continue using it, and it's going to be used into the end times itself. And so, you know, with your statement of you think that there is a, a higher force, a spiritual force that actually is involved with these sort of calibration systems, I believe it is in, even to this time, I think. Well, even um, the disclosure of it, you know, even the, yeah. even the disclosure of it to mortals. Uh, what's interesting is you mentioned the end times, and what I was just thinking about is that the Antichrist, is one of his things that said he's, he's uh, going to do is to change the times and the seasons. And I wonder if, in fact, he might try to obfuscate or, or try to cover up some of this revealed information hmm. by actually corrupting this reading system. It certainly happened in our history. Uh, from what I understand in uh, the work that Bishop Usher's done and, and others regarding the origins of the modern Jewish calendar, uh, my understanding is back in, what, 100 A.D. when it was established, that the, the, the rabbi actually that uh, oversaw the committee to establish it actually took huge numbers out of the reigns of the Persian kings, out of the time of Abraham and other people in the Bible to artific artificially deduct something like 240 years so in fact they could get the 69 weeks of Daniel to line up with the uh, anointment of uh, Bar Kokhba as the Messiah hmm. rather hmm. than Jesus which actually fit uh, hmm. there in, on Palm Sunday. So there, there has been you know, a precedent that people would manipulate this measurement calendar system, and, and, and there's still a legacy of it in the Jewish calendar, to try to pick a false messiah. Do you think that could repeat itself again? I think, I think it's uh, entirely possible. Um, I think even with the uh, idea of the metric system, was uh, almost part of this too, because it obfuscates these measurements um, that fit into prophecy, that fit into this idea that, Dimensionally, the temple is the center of everything on the earth. So if you're measuring in meters or kilometers, you don't see this. But mm -hmm. if you're using if you're using um, statue mile, this you know, Protestant Christian England is actually able to establish. Um, you see that the, the actual biblical prophetic power of of placement of the temples actually intact then. Right. It's you know? funny you mentioned meters because I, I always picture the French as the ones who really pushed that. And I think yeah. it's a legacy of the French Revolution. Where, where that, a, that was a Jacobin. Right. Yeah. That, that yeah. was another legacy, sort of a foreshadowing of the, t the time of the Days of Antichrist because they also changed the times and the seasons, changed our calendars, mm -hmm. even changed the, uh, changed the, the names the, of the well, a daily clock into yeah. a decimal system. At the same time, they got rid of our gods and set up some mm -hmm. kind of a pagan uh, goddess of liberty. Tried to institute a very, a very early project in eugenics. So, so, and, yeah. so trying to get rid of a, a, a Christian concept of the Messiah at the same time messing with our time seems to be interconnected, David. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're using uh, kilometers and you look at our solar system, for example, you won't see, you won't see the prophetic numbers stand out. Um, you take the moon, for example, you can find its, uh, its diameters 2,160 statue miles across. That's the sacred number, 2,520 minus 360. Um, and then even, you know, when it comes to its orbit, there's another function of, of the sacred number, which was fit into the sacred qubit. And the reason it was set into the sacred qubit was because of that very reason. It's, it's the, well, the qubit, the word for the qubit, 
actually means uh, mother. It's the mother of all measurements. It's the staple um, foundation for all measurement that God has actually uh, calibrated the earth, time, and um, creation into. And I think Newton realized that. And when you look at this phenomena of the distance equals time from the temple itself, or the temple mount itself, you can see this fits perfectly into uh, the calibration systems that we use it. Well, can you give us some more examples? You gave us the the example from Babylon, the fall. There's a lot more than that in there in world history. Oh, yes. There's, there's an incredible amount. Um, so you had that. That's the fall of Babylon. Uh, great things happened to the Jews because they were they were taken from the from Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And uh, they were placed in exile in, in where Iraq is now. And But when Persia took over, uh, Cyrus the Great released Jews, and they were able to go back and build the temple again. So that was a very uh, important, pivotal point in history for the Jews. And you look at another point where Persia itself falls to the Greeks, and the Hellenistic Empire takes over. That would have begun, the beginning of the end would have begun in 333 B.C. at the Battle of Issus, when Alexander routed at Darius II. Mm. And that happened um, north of Israel, uh, Precisely 333, actually miles away from the Temple Mount. You can actually go and check out the, uh, the, the route that Alexander took, the Battle of Issus. He actually was going uh, uh, south, trying to uh, cut Darius off, and Darius actually had outflanked him. And at the point where Alexander turns around and meets him at the battle, is exactly where 333, actually miles, occurs from the Temple Mount to that point north. You can go to one of the more contemporary uh, dates, 1948, the rebirth of Israel. The last country that was in rulership over Palestine at the time was England, and London would be the capital. And then you can actually find the ancient Roman center of, they call it the square mile, above mm -hmm. the plane, of where London is. And there's a stone, it's still in existence, it's not exactly in the right place anymore, on Canon Street is called the London Stone, the Roman mile marker for all the roads that were coming, kind of like a, a wagon wheel to ancient Londinium uh, when it was actually a, a Roman town. Um, you can measure from that point to the Temple Mount, and you'll find it's 1,948, and this time nautical miles. And the really strange thing about that is I found in every case, if you're finding a date, BC, it'll be in statute miles, and every date it's an AD, is a nautical mile. I, Do you I'm know why? Exactly sure why. Oh, I'm not exactly sure why, but it does, it does actually clarify, you know, um, uh, it, you know, in what part of uh, the Gregorian calendar it occurs. Hmm. There's also anomalies that you'll find, too. Well, um, I'll, I'll go on with some more examples. Uh, in 1799, in the, in the uh, campaign against Egypt, Napoleon actually was moving into Palestine, and in 1799, he actually... Uh, wrote a decree for the, uh, uh, the creation of a Jewish state there in Israel. And he, he partly believed that he was uh, fulfilling some of the prophecies of Daniel. And he believed he was a king that had come that would actually take over that, that portion of the country. Um, and his decree was stated in, uh, Jews are, are free to come back to this land and that that it, when he actually conquered it, he was still fighting the Battle of Axe at the time. 
against the Turks and the English allies, um, he, he would actually create a Jewish homeland. And that was in 1799 when he issued this decree. You can go to Paris, you can actually find the center island where the Church of Notre Dame is. And there's actually uh, a center stone there, a modern one, and that was in ancient times the center of, of, of Paris. And you can extend a line to the Temple Mount, and it's 1,799 nautical miles. <laughs> so wow. we're actually finding these contemporary, more contemporary dates um, here, too. I, I found uh, another one in Madrid, Spain, which I thought was strange. If you go right to the center of Madrid, Spain, you find 1943 or 1944, somewhere mm-hmm. there. Madrid was one of the, the uh, main hubs of the Underground Railroad for moving the Jews out mm-hmm. of Poland and Germany and out of, out of Europe, out of Western Europe, um, during the time of the Final Solution. It's like probably the nexus of, of, of that movement. It did more for the Jews... Uh, to escape that the, the Holocaust than any other uh, than any other city in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then you can go to Mecca, which I have to figure this out. I, I know that um, Islam is actually their their calendar starts with the idea that uh, uh, when uh, uh, I think it's Muhammad left um, Mecca is his journey away from Mecca, and I can't think of the actual date when they start, but I know it, it appears around 630 mm-hmm. AD, Islam does. Um, but it's not, that's not what I found when I measured the distance between the actual Kaaba stone in the Kaaba mosque in Mecca, the holiest place for Islam, and then you go to, to Judaism's holiest site, the site of the Temple Mount, where the Holy of Holies was, and it's exactly 666 nautical miles. If you, you extend that, if you extend that line a few feet farther than the center of the Kaaba stone, it's too far, and a few feet closer to Jerusalem, it's too, too, uh, it's not far enough. It's absolutely perfect to the foot for 666 nautical miles. That's not the only place that you find that number show up. You find it in also where Daniel was taken in his vision of the end times. Hmm. Um, in Daniel nine, where he. He, he's in Babylon, but he says in his vision he goes to Susa, which is in Iran, and where to this day it's called Shush, where where they say Daniel's uh, tomb is, and he's standing on this uh, this uh, this canal. You can actually go on Google Earth and look and find ancient Susa in Iran, and you can find where the canal is, and you can find that it itself is 666 uh, nautical miles away from from Jerusalem. And this is one of those an- anomalies again, too, and I was thinking, well, why is this? He's on the Elahi, he's between the Elahi River, it's like it splits right between the city, and you can find the canal that he's standing on, it's 666 nautical miles away, and you think, why would that number stand out? Well, if you notice that the latitude and longitude of Jerusalem itself, and I'll tell you what, what's in latitude and longitude. If latitude is uh, 31.46, at 31 degrees, 46 minutes, and uh, longitude is 35 east, 14 minutes. You add those two together, we'll get 66.6. And that stands out again, too. You're seeing the number repeat itself. In units that talk about the end time itself, in units 
where you find uh, the greatest uh, opposers, I, I, I suppose, to the Jewish state, and especially Jerusalem, as being the center for the religious well, uh, Israel. If I could just make and, a little quick speculation, David, on, on that, sure. with that data you just shared. My own research has been looking quite a bit at the history of the Amalekites and the potential that the uh, an Amalekite actually could end up being the person known as Gog in the last days based mm-hmm. upon the prophecy of Balaam. In the Septuagint, the word Gog was used instead of Agag, uh, and, and it was prophesied uh, on Mount Peor overlooking the area where Haman Gog is, his burial place, and said the king of Israel would prevail. Uh, and the Amalekites actually originated in Mecca, and they were the first enemies of Israel once they left Egypt. And God said at that time that he would he would be at war with the Amalekites for every generation. And if you look in the book of Esther, you'll find that Haman the Agagite uh, was the one who came up with the great scheme to annihilate the Jews in one day. And he actually <laughs> took the king of the Persians uh, and took his uh, armor. He basically paid for it. Uh, to be to to go against them and kill them throughout the kingdom, and it turned out to be the day of his own destruction. And there's many more parallels to what we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And in fact, in my own research, I've found that if you take his name Haman the Agagite, and you look at the burial ground Haman Gog, they're the same words in Hebrew, except you add a letter vav in the middle of both words. And that vav letter in Hebrew was a symbol of a hook. So, in fact, I wonder if, in fact, these are the hooks that the Lord refers to about bringing Gog against Israel. Uh, so, I think there's a connection between Mecca and uh, Iran, or, or ancient Persia, in, in their war, in this Gog-Magog war. And I also believe in the book of Daniel that their destruction is actually foretold in the next to last chapter. And it actually opens a window for the Antichrist that did come in and seize power in the area. Basically, it's an unveiling of him at, at the day of their destruction. So I know that's a, a long story for another day, but that was what I first thought of when you mentioned the 666 connection uh, to well, both of those centers. That immediately leads to what's going on right now, I think, in uh, uh, South Ossetia with Russia and uh, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And that whole that whole build-up, I think. Um, and I'll have to return to it, too, because it even fits into the time-distance um, phenomena from the temple. Hmm. Uh, and I, and I also agree with what you have to say about that Gog uh, war occurring, which would actually open the window for the Antichrist to unveil the Antichrist at that its culmination. Mm-hmm. I think that that um, the history repeats itself. I mean, remember this this last day. And I guess I was just go into this number um, of what's actually happening with um, the Georgia conflict really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. We hear about it at the same time as the opening ceremonies for uh, the Olympics occurred. And what most people don't realize is the Olympics were celebrated. Um, actually, they were the, the head of, of the time uh, segment, the segment of time for the Greeks called the Olympiad, which is a four-year segment. And so this next Olympiad will lead us to 2012. And 2012 has been talked about over and over again as being you know, some significant point in the Mayan calendar where time literally stops, but time literally ends as they understood it, and, and that their, their god, their feathered serpent god, would return to the earth. Um, and that's uh, the calendar ends in uh, December 21st, which would be the winter solstice in 2012. Well, 
if you realize then how time oriented an Olympiad is, the Olympics were in the ancient Greek times, and now we kind of you know it's, it's, uh, disconnected from that idea. Um, it's interesting that there would be such a, uh, a war showing up in the area that it did at the time at eight uh, August eighth, two thousand eight. So the signature was eight eight eight. And, and South Ossetia, actually the border between North and South Ossetia where the Russians came in um, through this tunnel into South Ossetia, the breakaway province from Georgia, is 888 uh, nautical miles away. Or no, statue miles away. It's one of those anomalies from the Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. I found out that 888 years ago, the Knights Templar were actually recognized by the Patriarch of, of, of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1120 A.D., um, and uh, the Knights Templar are the basis for almost all of the illuminated fraternities that we have um, at this day, especially when you think of uh, the Illuminati, the, one world, uh, the New World Order, their whole drive to recapture again Jerusalem for this one world ruler. And that is, in fact, um, if you go back to the First Crusades, exactly what was. Uh, uh, on the minds of the people who are, who are actually going there. This idea that if they could capture Jerusalem for Christendom, then the, the, the Messiah would return. Um, amazingly, they, the, the Crusades, um, you get that number again, the number 88, uh, or 888, when they captured Jerusalem in 1099 AD, they kept it, they held it for 88 years until it fell to the, to the Muslims in 1187. <laughs> and... So you have this number showing up again and again, and, and this is strange. This Jerusalem itself was called Jebus or Jebusis by the, the ancient patriarchs. Before it was called Jerusalem or Salem, it was Jebus, and that just means a threshing floor, a place where you would kind of circular place where you throw sheaves of grain, and uh, uh, animal walks, you know, like mm-hmm. pull drink the heavy over it and break the stalks off and break the grain off the sheaves. Um, Jebus itself in Hebrew, if you actually add the letters, um, equal 88. So this number 88 is fitting into Jerusalem over and over and over again for some bizarre reason. And, uh, and if you look at the ancient maps of where Georgia is today, uh, based on uh, how, where they have, in Judaism, where they would put Gog, Magog, Second two ball, you'll see them wedged perfectly up against the east side of the Black Sea and below the Caucasus Mountains, where Georgia is today. So, what I think is happening is, at least symbolically, at least uh, according to these illumina- illuminated sort of uh, cabals that are at work, if you believe in that sort of thing, and 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 I think also forces, spiritual forces in high places, mm-hmm. creating this signature in time that harkens back to that same idea of taking um, Jerusalem again, not not necessarily for Christendom, but for, you know, that uh, anti-Christendom. Mm-hmm. It's Christian but not. And you'll notice that the flag of Georgia today is a fivefold cross. It's, it's a white background, and there's the main red cross in the center with four surrounding it. That is exactly the same uh, ensign that was used in the Kingdom of Jerusalem back during the Crusades. And what the Knights Templar originally took was the Fifle Cross and it was changed to the Red Cross. 
red, this one single red cross. Georgia itself is named after the uh, kind of symbolic saint that uh, Saint George, who, who took Israel, um, and the idea that it slays the dragon and, and captures the maiden. Well, Israel, Jerusalem, basically is that fair maiden. The actual capturing of the Jerusalem for for Europe at that time was uh, considered. Um, it's the highest thing that could actually have happened, man actually working in a prophetic sort of way. But interestingly, you're seeing the same motif again in present, in present time. Well, you know what's strange um, about this, David, is that uh, it, we now know, the data's come out, that uh, Georgia was very heavily involved with Israel right now. Israel yeah. provided them all their weapons and hardware. There were a thousand Israeli advisors on the ground. And now we find out that they'd actually had runways that Israel was planning to use to attack Iran that were actually runways that, that, that provided the appropriate distance that they could reach with their aircraft. And they had a big scheme that's been going on for a long time. So there's a really tight connection. And people who regularly listen to our show would have heard this over the last few weeks, but mm -hmm. um, uh, others who may not be aware of that is that they've had this long involvement. And the, the, the Israeli advisors were involved even in part of that initial skirmish. Uh, where Georgia went into those uh, provinces before Russia responded. And it would make a lot of sense then that this would fit into the uh, uh, prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39, as you were talking about the hook in a mm -hmm. jaw. That this it's a metaphor used by Ezekiel himself. God takes the hook and, and brings these these uh, uh, armies into Israel and uh, then destroys them. And uh, you can see, I think, a setting up rather rapidly of a situation where the Antichrist would be able to show up. Because what I think will happen is when, if you have a, a Arab Confederacy you know, backed by Russia that comes into Israel and tries to once and for all take over that area, um, and they're completely wiped out, um, and you look at Ezekiel's prophecy, by the hand of God, then you would actually see a lot of Christians who aren't really well read in the Bible mm -hmm. and prophecy, and, and, and many religious, religious Jews believe that this was that last battle where the Messiah does show up. Mm -hmm. It was Armageddon. It's a, like a fake Armageddon. Mm -hmm. right. well, you have someone stand up on, on the scene who, who claims to be Christ himself. Right. Um, and an ecumenical one is that. Somebody who says, well, you know, Islam's okay, uh, right. Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever, pagan, it doesn't matter. But Jerusalem will be the place where I'll rule, and he'll actually cause the, the old uh, the system to come into uh, play again. And according to what Ezekiel and John say is, um, you know, having the temple there, but then the, the court of the Gentiles not even being measured, this idea that there's simultaneously uh, a, on the Temple Mount is being occupied by both a uh, Jewish temple and, say, the, the Dome of the Rock, mm -hmm. you know, a shrine to even Islam, a shrine to almost every other religion, at the same time as that there is a temple there. Um, that would fit perfectly into this anti-Christian right. world. Well, you know, the Jews, the Jews believe that uh, the Gog-Magog War is their Armageddon, and then after that, it'll all be uh, peace and love happily ever after, which we know that's just the beginning of the end. But one other comment I want to mention to you about Mecca, the Mecca connection, 
with the Amalekites and, and the battle with the neighbors. Uh, the, the whole idea of the 12th Imam that the Shiites believe is that he will suddenly appear in Mecca and he will appear at the Kaaba and announce himself and he'll draw these, these other men that support him, these leaders, and they will conquer the surrounding nations like uh, Iraq and Syria and then they'll go in league with the king of Persia and come up on the hills of Jerusalem and conquer it. So it's the exact picture of what we see of Gog Magog, what they're expecting. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have this scenario in, I believe, Isaiah 17 with the destruction of Damascus. And more and more people are now seeing this as a precursor war where the immediate neighbors of Israel, like Jordan, Egypt, others, mm-hmm. uh, are devastated. And, and even Israel is largely devastated. But uh, God sends uh, Jews from around the world to come back and repopulate, bring wealth back into it. And that's why the land... Uh, is recovering from war, as it says in Ezekiel 38, when suddenly they get the great idea to plunder it. So I just see more and more of this. But I, the, if in the next to last chapter of Daniel, uh, it mentions uh, the, the last king. Now, this is a little bit earlier than what other people would see the Antichrist, but the, the last one they mentioned uh, there, the king of the north, that, that we don't read of him dying, it says that uh, he's placed in the area of the king of the north of the Seleucid kingdom, which we know covered the area of northern Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, that general area, uh, which would be a demilitarized zone between Iran and, and Israel if one of these wars occurred, particularly if the kingdom of Damascus and Syria fell. So I could see a demilitarized zone with some kind of uh, viceroy or you know military uh, overseer over this area. Uh, and then Daniel says that he, says he witnesses a great army fall before him, and I wonder if, in fact, this could be the army of Gog that falls, because immediately after that, he, through great intrigue, he begins conquering one land after another. And I think that's an ideal time for him to sign that seven-year treaty uh, to come in as the supposed savior you know, of the people at that time. So that's an, another way that I would interpret the 666 being a, a means by which Antichrist is unveiled uh, by the actions that originate in Mecca. Yeah, it- it, it does center around the temple also. I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, this number, 666, shows up uh, again on the 360-day calendar between the first destruction, the temples, the first temple's destruction in 587 B.C., and then the second temple's destruction in 70 A.D. The first was by the Babylonians and the second by the Romans. Um, the distance between those two destructions of the two different temples and the same exact temple Mount, same site, the 657 calendar years, solar years, 365 days each, or 666 years, 360 days to a year. And Hmm. every time, it's always pointing back to the temple site. And I, at first I was kind of wondering, too, why would Jerusalem be stamped with this number? even if latitude and longitude equals 66.6. Well, this is where this event, this, this Antichrist, who's Mark, is identifying Mark in 666. That's where it's all going to happen. It's all coming down in the temple site in, in, in the actual place that, that uh, Daniel talks about, and, and you can find in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, where, where Jesus says, the abomination of desolation that is set up in, in the holy place. And the Antichrist goes there and says that he is God himself. And he's totally indwelt by Satan himself. You find 
this significance of this point on, on this point of real estate on this earth and the only one place on, uh, uh, on the earth that God has said he would dwell with men forever. And here this Satan comes and actually causes uh, uh, almost everybody on, on earth to actually believe that he's, he's really God and, and he goes mm-hmm. to the place where God himself says he'll dwell. In fact, um, when in, in Satan's I will speech in Isaiah 14, he talks about I will I will set myself in the sides of the north in the Mount of the Assembly. That 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 phraseology, the sides of the north, are used exactly for the temple in Mount Zion. It's actually placed in the sides of the north. So actually, by coming to that place, uh, Satan has done or will do something that has never been done, and something so uh, amazingly uh, abominable that. Uh, you have to mark the place with the number 666 if it's the place where it ends up happening. But um, that connection between all the players, though, um, Islam, or in the, in the, in the Hadith Quran that say, you know, uh, when you go out to, to, uh, to fight to bring Islam to every corner of the earth, those infidels who don't uh, accept the Quran and don't accept the faith, their heads must leave their, their, their shoulders. Mm-hmm. And then you look at Revelation that talks about the martyrs that are beheaded for the faith, and you already have a ready-made sort of religious system that would do that. Mm -hmm. Freed, and that's already set up. You see that it has a big part in the end-time scenario. Right. Right along with what's going on in Judaism and existing along with it. Uh, Brother Dave, we've got about eight minutes left in our show. And I, I, I want you to talk a little bit about uh, the situation with the Ark of the Covenant, because that's created a lot of buzz. But right before you do that, before we leave your calendar dating, uh, i got to ask you a question. I don't know if anybody else is asking you about this, but being Dr. Future and being Future Quake, looking at the here and now and beyond, is there anything just gee whiz factor when you've plugged in things like 2008 nautical miles, 2009, 2012? Have you found anything that's piqued your interest there? Well, Going back to the name of Jerusalem itself, the actual temple site that David bought was from a Jebusite, and uh, Jebus being, you know, uh, a threshing floor, a circle, a crop mm-hmm. circle, right? Well, all the crop circles that you'll find, the majority of them, 99.9% of them occur in an area in England near, uh, called Wiltshire, which is 33 degrees the swath of 33 degrees, 33 minutes, or just 33 degrees, zero minutes hmm. from the Temple Mount. And at 33 degrees, zero minutes, that's, uh, that's 1,980 nautical miles away. Um, the crop circle phenomena occurred, basically was coined in 1980 when they started appearing there in, in Wiltshire. Mm-hmm. Then um, you find them to the extent of uh, 2012, almost 2015, nautical miles away, which fit into the scenario, again, 33 degrees, 33 minutes. What you're looking at, then, is that stamp of 33. On the Gregorian calendar, 33 is where Jesus, when he was himself 33 years old, died and resurrected. If you look at, mathematically, this whole idea of the Trinity, and the Messiah being one-third of the Trinity, and his resurrection actually being a stamp of a third, you know, 100% of something as a whole, so one third of it is 33.3333, you know, percent. 
So 33 is actually a stamp of a third, part of the, part of the third of the Trinity. His resurrection is is connected to that, and I think that 2012 is also a statement of that too, because it actually fits into dimensionally uh, uh, a third of the year. The idea of a third of time, actually counting from that manifestation of Christ on Earth to 2012, is actually another statement of a third again. I think what we're looking at. And, and this is kind of going on a limb, is the other, res, you know, the resurrection of the rest of his body, of being the body of Christ, oh. who would also necessarily fit into that idea of being resurrected with the stamp of a third on us. And finding finding that almost, well, this is blowing my mind, too, when I look at the whole idea of how this fits into the Illuminati's um, plan for us, the reason the United States was actually put uh, on the earth as a, as a power. Um, it all fits into the same statement, but I don't have enough time to actually go into that. <laughs> well, any way you could ever come back and uh, share some of these things with us uh, to go oh, over yeah, it. I know I, you're incredibly busy, and I, we hate to bother you, but we've got so many things we want to talk about. But if you can just give us a little hint about the the uh, Ark of the Covenant in um, three to four minutes uh, before we wrap up. It is, uh, you find the first, the first description of the creation of the Ark of the Covenant in an amazing place, Exodus 25, ending on verse 20. So you have the same number of the sacred cubit, even in the placement of the, uh, Ark, which held Whoa. the <laughs> That's far out. Of law. And part of that law was, you must keep perfect weights and measures, um, to just, you know, to convert them. Or, or, or to corrupt them in any way was an abomination to God. So the standards, the weights and measures, were actually placed inside the ark. Not mm-hmm. just the, the Decalogue, but, you know, the whole, the whole rest of Deuteronomy, that, a, a scroll itself was actually placed in the ark, and it had, it had this measurement system as part of uh, the, the law. Um, and so this idea of where the ark is, is still connected to that sacred cubit. And you find that if you had a King James Bible that was written before 1885, you could find a statement in the Western canon that said, Jeremiah, this is in 2 Maccabees, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that says, Jeremiah, when he knew the temple was going to be destroyed, he took the, the, uh, the tabernacle, and he took the Ark of the Covenant itself, and he placed it at the base of Mount Nebo, and he put it in a cave, and then he covered up the cave. And then it says after that, that people went to try to mark the way, and when Jeremiah found out this, he said, well, it's not going to ever be found again, because God supernaturally is keeping it hidden until his people are brought back out of the diaspora, out of the dispersion, mm-hmm. Israel again. And then he says, when that happens, the ark will be found, and also the, kodesh, the Ruach HaKodesh, the, Ruach HaKodesh the, the glory, the actual the pillar that was uh, of fire at night and cloud by day that well, over the mercy seat, that would appear again. So he's making a statement that this ark could actually be brought back to Jerusalem. Well, notice, though, an interesting idea that Mount Nebo, if you actually go look at a map, it is in a perfect line in latitude from the Temple Mount. Hmm. In fact, if you draw a line perfectly from the Temple Mount, staying exactly on the same latitude as the, the uh, Holy of Holies, and extending that line to 25.20 nautical miles, you'll end up 1,260 uh, uh, 
yards from the summit of Mount Nebo, 1,260 feet above sea level, on the on the um, flanks of Mount Nebo, which is half 2520, which is a you know number of sacred cubit only times 10. But what you'll notice is that even the nautical mile system of 25.20 nautical miles fits the ancient stadia of the Greeks and the Romans. And it was, if you measure in stadia, 252 stadia. I've got two different readings on it. It could be mm-hmm. 252.0 or 252.252 uh, ancient stadia. So not only in antiquity does this measurement uh, follow the uh, actual story, which is the only one you're going to find of where the ark was put, but it also fits a moderate calibration and ancient calibration. And what's also interesting is you find it not just in Maccabees, you find it in the Apocryphal Boaz, mm-hmm. Boaz, or sorry, Baruch, second Baruch, they use the same description. But it's said that Moses' body was actually buried in a valley, right, right. Or, which is exactly north of Mount Nebo. And then it says that when Joshua crossed Jordan, he crossed it at a place called the Plains of Moab, and the last place that they were camped was called, uh, uh, I can remember it, Beth Jesimoth, which you can find on the map now is actually lower than Mount Nebo. So I believe that the line that they crossed and had parted the Jordan when the ark actually crossed is exactly the same latitude where the uh, Holy of Holies is mm-hmm. and was. And that when you look at when uh, Elijah parted the Jordan, he crossed to the same area where most of his body was di- had disappeared on the flanks mm. of the Isn't that amazing? So I wow. Jeremiah actually may have placed Ark in the old sepulcher of Moses, and then Moses' body had been taken out by the uh, Archangel Michael, which Jude says in the last, you know, the book of Jude, mm-hmm. says that that actually occurred. And we know Moses as in existence because he appears um, as these two witnesses right. of transfiguration along with Elijah. Right. So if you, you know, I was putting two and two together, who would be the one prophet who, if he was around, would be most worthy to recapture the, or, or, or re, uh, regain the ark, to recover the ark? Well, it would mm-hmm. be most. Right. That's right. Brother David, I hate yep. to have to close it. We're at the end of our time and beyond. Uh, we'd love to have you back to talk about this further. Yeah, this was fascinating. Um, oh, my goodness. We, we just really highly regard your work. In closing, could you please tell our listeners how they can get a hold of your book? It's on Amazon, and it's available now. For a long time, it was just mm-hmm. pre-ordered. The Temple at the Center of Time. Mm-hmm. At the Center of Time. And uh, mm-hmm. go to what? WatcherWebsite.com? It's uh, WatcherWebsite.com, I believe. If you just Google Watcher Website, you'll be able to find it. This is kind of a, okay. a screwy sort of URL nowadays. And, uh, it is a classic. Cool. It is a classic you need to go to. Uh, Brother David, thank you so much for blessing us here. And it is, as much as your busy time will permit for you to come back and comment, we would certainly love to have you back. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Well, yeah. thank you so much for blessing us and our listeners uh, tonight on Future Quake. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And I'm not going to ask you what this means for Friday because you never know. No, no, I know what day it is. It's Friday. And what does that mean? That means 
Okay, I was going to say something funny, but I'll just say it. It's tomorrow's Tremors, or today's review of the news. Of the future's news. Oh, well, okay. I got a 90 on that one. Yeah, well, I'm still amazed that you got that right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry about our little (laughs) sniping here. It's wonderful to be back with you on Friday. We sure hope you enjoyed our interview with David Flynn. Uh, I tell you, there was so much information we wanted to cover, and we had to rush it. And so we didn't get to cover everything, but he is a brilliant person. Uh, his book is right near the top of all of Amazon.com right now, his book, even when it was in just pre-sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's near the top in, like, the history and prophecy sections there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was top of the World Net Daily, uh, at the very top of the board for them, headlines oh, yeah. for a week at least, and is the best-selling book there. So, mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of a grand unified theory of, you know, prophecy. Yeah. You know, it's... Well, these are amazing days that we live in. We hope you're enjoying the the people who we're covering. We've got some really further big-name guests are going to be coming up in the weeks ahead. And one thing that uh, I'm really uh, proud to announce today is that we have some incredibly cool emails that we got from some very bright and intelligent listeners, which I think is our typical demographic on Future Quake. But did did you want to... Explain what you had heard before we get into that. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had I actually had lunch with a, uh, a very good friend of mine who's uh, a physical and occupational therapist, uh, you know, kind of at the top of her field mm-hmm. here in this area. And she actually uh, related a very odd story to me that I thought I should tell our future Quake listeners. Maybe it means something, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But if they could help explain it, maybe they okay. should write in and let us know. Well, quickly tell us. Yep. The upshot was she was working in her office, and then some, there was a knock at the door, and she looked through the window, and there's a lady dressed in fatigues. She opens the door, and the lady in fatigue says, uh, Hi, I'm, I'm Captain blah, 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 and I'm here to, uh, uh, I want to schedule a time to do a recruitment drive uh, among the occupational and physical therapists. They scheduled a time, I guess, and they're buying, or I don't know, they, they may have already done it at the time of this recording. They uh, bought lunch for the entire department to try and recruit them, uh, which was 300 people. And in her opinion, uh, it seems to be a clear indication that uh, uh, the the military is expecting lots of casualties. Hmm. Uh, And there's all these questions that roll around in my head. So they're ramping up their staffing for all the casualties from an imminent war. Possibly, yes. That is one possible scenario. I find it interesting because the VA usually handles that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so they must really be thinking about a lot of casualties if the Army's even getting involved. Sure, sure. Um, well, it's just the things like that. If, Ladies and gentlemen, if you hear from your connections out there, out mm-hmm. there in the Futurian world, let us know. Maybe yeah. we can all put the pieces together and figure out what's really going on since we cannot trust our media to tell us. No, they're a joke. Um, they, they, they read, Quake, of, course. of course, they read what they're told to read, um, what their people on top are cozy mm-hmm. with the people in power do and uh, they've never been a reliable source just some of us are, are a little bit later in figuring that out uh but uh would much rather trust you all out there and what you all see out on the street so yeah. thank you for sharing that with us well and if anybody i've noticed that aircraft the the purchasing of aircraft parts is way up for the military as well somebody sent me a a, a little report that mentioned they were up like 77 percent this quarter for military aircraft. or commercial military aircraft parts okay. Huh. And, uh, well, interesting. Didn't list the buyers, but, yeah. you know, it's a U.S. report. Who else is going to be buying them? Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, that's very interesting. But yeah. I have some uh, emails from our listeners that I'd really like to read, if you don't mind. Do it up. But I think they're fascinating. Yeah. 
Plus, they're very nice to us, and I always enjoy that. Uh, this is from Joel, uh, who sent one uh, this past Monday. Um, Joel says, Hello, Dr. Future. I would first like to tell you how much I appreciate and enjoy your show. Uh, I believe that there is a real need for the type of ministry you provide. Secondly, I know you've had a few shows on the Dominionist movement and was wondering if anyone has ever tried to find out where all of their funding is coming from. From the outside looking in, it seems like they spend an absurd amount of money. Way more than I would think the average congregation could finance. Thanks for your time, and God bless. It's a very interesting point. Well, first of all, Joel, thank you for the encouragement, because yeah. Tom and I need all the encouragement we get. We uh, volunteer at this. takes up a lot of our time. And especially Dr. Future. That man and, is uh, a, he's we a just, machine. Well, we just appreciate so much your encouragement, and you raise a good question. I'm, I'm now learning as I get older that the old follow-the-money adage it's very, very, very intelligent. Yeah, there's and, far more there than just meets the eye. And uh, I don't know where they're getting their money. I know, particularly in media and a lot of their, the the media people that they do in their mm-hmm. networks, those are for-profit outfits, and they raise money. Mm-hmm. So somebody's writing the checks. Yeah, Janet Parshall, I know that she is a for-profit thing, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, uh, with uh, Salem Communications, yeah. and there's a host of them like that. And I don't know where the mo- where the money's coming from, but yeah. I guess it's just advertising. But maybe we need to look closer at advertisers yeah. and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, keep let's let's all keep an eye out for that. And it's an excellent point you raise. Uh, uh, Joel, I'd asked Joel. I responded to him via email, and and I'd asked him to find out where he's from. I'm just curious to see. We we broadcast out of Nashville here, but we have a lot of listeners over the World Wide Web and uh, mm-hmm. iTunes. Uh, he says, uh, I live in a small town in Oregon. I listen to your show via the Internet. I don't remember exactly how I discovered it, but I guess is that I follow a link to an interview you did with either Peter Goodgame or Tom Horn. Two fine men, yeah. I might add. Two good ones. Uh, I think I've been listening when I have a chance for about a year now. Uh, I like this line. I felt your pain when you've ever had technical <laughs> problems. I'm sure the day may come when something may not go smooth for us, I'm sure. Well, I think it runs like a well-oiled machine. Our, our audio guy is second to well, none. Yeah, like yeah, thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Uh, it's much better than our WRFN days when we were live. Yeah. And we'd come in there and we might have one microphone working. Remember that, remember that one time? Where we uh, muted one mic, and I spent 20 minutes on the show trying to <laughs> unscrewing the thing and screwing it back in and plugging. You, you mean like where you're under the table trying to that, figure that, out yeah, stall? That, no, yeah. I, no, that was a different night, I think, okay. actually. Okay, all right. Well, uh, he says, uh, I run the audio-video stuff at the church I attend, and something is always working improperly. Well, we could certainly use your help here, uh, Joel. Yeah. He says, I'll be sure to pass on the information I come across. Uh, don't expect I'll discover anything groundbreaking. I will be the judge of that. Mm-hmm. But I'll keep my ears open. Uh, more practically, I'll keep both you and Tom in my prayers. Thank you. Being a public voice, amen, and bringing up controversial subjects cannot be easy. Uh, good thing we have the grace of God to help us with the fields he's called us to work in. Amen, brother. Amen. Thank you, Brother Joel, for that great mm-hmm. word. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. God bless you and Tom and your families. Well, God bless you, too. Well, I That's really cool. appreciate that email. Thank you for your friendship, yeah. Joel, and, and it's good being a brother in the Lord with yeah. you. Uh, Nathaniel uh, also uh, sent one, another listener, asked about Obama, McCain, and Bohemian Grove. Mm. Another interesting uh, starting sentence here. It says, hey, Dr. Future, I've been a consistent listener now to your show via podcast for a few months now. I must say it's been an interesting experience that has transformed my worldview of America. Really? Its relations with the world and the end of the world, etc. Wow. High five. I know. Hey. That's great, man. I, I'm, that's that's what we want to do is yeah. be able to have an impact in people's lives. Uh, however, he throws a challenge out here to us. He says, on your last release, 
You and Tom Bionic were discussing one of your guests about the Bohemian Grove. Uh, I did research and found that what you said uh, was mostly correct about it. However, there's a statement that you gave that Obama and McCain were rumored to be in attendance. I looked that up as well and only found the same paragraph listed on various news sites that there were rumors this was true. The same information you quoted on your show. I could find no references to the rumors and it's now September and I've not managed to find one piece of information on the matter beyond these rumors. Mm-hmm. On your episode, you drew from this information as if it were fact and used it as a reason why we should not vote for either candidate. I've been a supporter for McCain for a long time now, along with disagreements, but this is one that has no solid evidence and does not fit in with his recent political ambitions. He has chosen Governor Sarah Palin as his running mate, a girl that has not been involved in any of these circles at any time of her life or past generations. She's a reformer and even has managed to have creationism taught in public schools in Alaska. Hmm. On this choice, I would base the rumors of being in Bohemian Grove incorrect. But that's uh, just what I looked up. I'll be listening to your show and greatly appreciate your response. Um, thank you for looking into these things and broadcasting them. A very unpopular thing to do these days. Mm-hmm. I enjoy your show and hope you'll continue on. God bless. Thank you for that great email, Nathaniel, yeah, because thanks. what it does is it gives us encouragement, yet at the same time it also challenges us to do our best job. And I'm sure you may have some comments on that. Yeah. I, well, uh, having known a couple people who've attended... Uh, I think typically what the case is is people that, on the inside. Yeah. People have been people, there on the inside. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was actually invited one time to go. Um, so are you like a plant on our show? No, I don't grow yeah. anything. Now how am leafy. I supposed to how am I supposed to believe you if uh, well, if you say the, that you're not get here the to the collect and information? Yeah. Where, did, where did we leave that? Oh, I think Pyro's got him. Yeah, Merv might have walked so, off of them. You know, people have been in there. And the way it typically works is like this. You know, there's obviously a, a guest list of about two thousand. In fact, you can find it online if you want to look around. Just type in right. Bohemian Grove guest list and search around for a little while. Um, but typically, there are people who aren't on the list that just show up. You know, mm-hmm. um, there were times that there were times, I guess, in, in back in the '90s when uh, Bush the Junior, Bush the Lesser, was not on the list, but he just showed up in the same motorcade with his pop. And uh, yeah, it's not like they're going to turn them back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, well, but, you know, technically he is correct. I'll, well, I'll give him that. Even back to that, you're right. Thank I went you back and did references because we want to be accurate. These things yeah. are too sensitive not to be accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like Nathaniel said, there were several references I found, a number of them that said they are rumored to be in attendance for one reason or another. They were believed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found a couple that actually said they are scheduled to be there, but I didn't see how they had reference on that. But one thing we do know, well, first of all, what our what our concerns are about the current parties, what's going on, is irrelevant on whether they're there or not. To me, it was just another symptom of the problem, sure. but it's not the description of the total sure. total problem. Uh, we do know that most of the top officials from both parties go to this. I mean, we've yeah, seen pictures, many of them, particularly yeah. on Republicans like uh, Bush Senior, Junior. I've seen pictures of them there. Mm-hmm. I've seen pictures of Ronald Reagan there. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these different officials. So Nixon, it, yeah. we shouldn't be shocked that they're there. We would expect that they, whether they're on a list or not, that doesn't say for sure whether any of those are there. I do know um, that supposedly uh, both uh, camps, uh, Obama and McCain, were in California that time. I heard that through independent sources on the news and TV and things. Mm that they were there during that window of time. So all that is is circumstantial. But um, if, if I could just comment on the thing about, uh, you know, picking on a political party or not, and, and in fact, I have no knowledge of anything of Sarah Palin being involved in any of that, and she seems like a fine woman. Yeah. Uh, my problems are completely 
uh, unrelated to the whole thing with Bohemian Grove. I, again, that would be a further problem if it, if, if that yeah, were true. Symptomatic. But, it's not but, it's symptomatic. Not, yeah. But uh, you know, my problems with uh, with a, someone like McCain, having been one who's voted Republican my whole life up until now, is that. Uh, he says one thing, but his voting record is completely different. He well, has stood against pro-life judges. He has stood with uh, Democrats to block pro-life judges, except for people like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, and didn't he call uh, supposedly call Christians agents of intolerance? Yeah, uh, evangelicals, evangelicals are agents of intolerance. Uh, he is for basically virtually no restrictions on illegals coming in. I'm I'm simplifying things here, but his general stand is is to. Uh, more, more toward letting them do what they please uh, mm-hmm. coming in. And there's a host of other issues like this. And basically, four years ago, he was planning to run on the Democratic ticket. He was within the eyelash of being Kerry's running mate. Wow. And, uh, he had been asked, he toyed with the idea of switching parties. And uh, who would, no one would have ever guessed then that he would have ever been considered, particularly embraced by conservatives for this run. Mm-hmm. So I, there, there's other problems I have, too. I have a problem that he's a serial adulterer by his own omission, uh, that the wife who waited for him all those years. And I, I, I'm very thankful that he, uh, that he you know, patiently endured what he, what he went through over in uh, captivity. But uh, when he came back, uh, he left the wife who had waited for him. Uh, she had had some problems, uh, medical problems and things, and he had gotten hooked up with a beauty queen with lots and lots of money. Yeah, and, uh, and then gave her the heave ho. Yeah, and I wasn't there to see all the details, but but you know I've picked up the understanding from numerous maybe sources. Maybe we should so. call the maybe we should call the uh, uh, the RNC and see if we can schedule uh, you know a week's worth of interviews. Yeah, they'll get us right at the top of the list. I'm, I'm sure. sure. I'm yeah. sure they'll bump us right up. They'll probably take I a rally so. off and put yeah. us on for that. Uh, they don't interpret that in any way that I I like. Obama at all. Uh, I think Obama is sort of like the northern kingdom of Israel. They were usually off worshiping Baal virtually all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they... they if you, I, if I, I think, might say the pagans will do what the pagans will do. Right. They're, I mean, their party sort of worships the state as God in my simplistic terms, and that the state is going to be the savior of society. Uh, my problem is the Republicans are looking too much like them, and that's why my personal leaning is Dr. Futures toward the Constitution Party. And Chuck Baldwin, at least give them a chance to see if yeah. they can be true to the word before they mess well, up. Well, Daniel, we thank you. Uh, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, I'm sorry. Well, I got another little quick, uh, I did email him back, and we had a long talk okay. uh, on email. And uh, he sent back, said, thanks, Dr. Future, because I asked him where he was from, too. Yeah. He says, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and found your show looking through the podcast directory on iTunes. Which, that's a good encouragement. Oh, so it's yeah. worth Worth the effort to keep it updated. Mm-hmm. I was looking for more independent Christian news sources that covered events of this confusing world with a pure perspective. I know this show has well covered what I was looking for. Amen, brother. Thank you. Yeah. It is hard to find people who really look into rabbit trails and simply don't accept surface-level media. Well, we like carrots here. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Okay. So, Nathaniel, keep keep us posted yeah. on email and particularly any kind of guest or people you like. I have another one from Dave. Uh, Dave had a comment on the Chuck Missler interview, and this is a very interesting mm-hmm. post as well, too. Yeah. He says, uh, thanks for your patience on this. I just think these are no, important. No, no, there's great. Let's keep, let's, let's, maybe we could make people this. People know uh, the typical. Uh, we, could probably, we could probably do the whole show with these. Well, this, is a, this is a good week yeah. uh, for, for fans. Dear Dr. Future, this is from Dave. He says, thank you for your wonderful interviews and the information you present on your show. Having only recently started listening, you have taken a permanent slot on my iPod. What a compliment. Yeah. Uh, I write to you after listening to the first part of your interview with Chuck Missler. I found it to be both interesting and enlightening, yet at the same time I came away from it a little perplexed. 
that makes two of us. Yeah, here we go. As I strive to become a more educated and well-rounded follower of Jesus, like many, I listen to alternative media like your show and others in an attempt to get a better understanding of the relationship between Christianity, the modern world, and those that would claim to be followers of Jesus, but have more earthly designs. Mm-hmm. Well stated. Uh, amongst those I have listened to in the past include the Collins brothers, Paul and Phil. Uh, I have heard them on at least five different internet radio shows, yours included, and I've always found them to be logical and able to bring facts together to reveal the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. It struck me then, when listening to Chuck Missler today, uh, as I was making the kids lunch, which I find is a very interesting visual picture to picture mm, them, lunch. making the kids lunch, listening to Future Quake. Yeah. Uh, his comments regarding friends in the CNP, the Council for National Policy. The Collins Brothers did an extensive article on the CNP uh, at conspiracyarchive.com, as well as several interviews. Uh, A few quotes from the article. This is from the Collins Brothers research. Uh, The CNP, Council on National Policy, exhibits many of the features of the traditional global machinations that comprise the neoliberal wing of the ruling elite. Uh, ABC's Mark Amender uh, characterizes the CNP, this is ABC News, I'll copy this, Mm -hmm. characterizes the CNP as the conservative version of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Also, the CNP seems to be the result of the cross-pollination between neoconservatives, the Iran-Contra fraternity, and Nazis. Whoa. Uh, The article describes the CNP as a creation of factions, the power elite, designed to mobilize well-meaning Christians and to unwittingly support elite initiatives and empties Christianity of its metaphysical substance. Having heard Mr. Missler in Christian circles before, but never reading any of his material or listening to any of his sermons, I cannot claim to know his intents or beliefs. That's very well said. I understand he was a big influence in Tom's Christian walk, and I do not mean to disparage him or his work. Yeah, uh, well, I'll, to comment on that briefly, he was, he was very influential. Uh, but I'm feeling feeling the same uh, perplexed. Well, we'll comment feeling. on that. I've just yeah. got a few sentences here. Okay. Uh, he says, I, I did find it somewhat unsettling to hear Mr. Missler talk about his covert sources in contacts as some sort of Christian intelligence agency, as well as a seemingly continued strong connection in the world of big government. I think you yourself stated, Dr. Future, that Mr. Missler himself may be infiltrated within his organization. Or I said the possibility exists, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that this spy versus spy type of Christianity is healthy or even needed for the church to perform its mission. On the contrary, this type of behavior, in my mind, is part of the reason why there's darkness in the world. Call me naive. While Mr. Missler seems very intelligent and convicted to Christ, it makes me wonder if he isn't serving two masters. Is he aware of the dominionist-leaning policies of the CNP and some of its members? Does he promote dominionist views himself? If not, why does he choose to associate himself in such a powerful organization? Again, I'm not familiar with Mr. Missler, as some are, and I do not wish to tarnish his reputation or slander him in any way. I only wish to gain a better understanding of his, this apparent disparity. Thanks for your time on the show, Dave. Dave should be a writer. He should be on our show. Yeah, he's I've good. A very, Dave, very why don't you get, a, why don't you get a, a, a blog? Yeah. You could call it I Love Dr. Future and TimeBionic.blogspot.com. And pay millions of dollars yeah. to advertise it. Yeah. Uh, no, seriously, though, um, and, and I emailed him about this, but I'll just let our other listeners know me the same mm-hmm. question. We had many of the same questions that he had. Yeah, I was, I was stunned. We've had a real honest. appreciation for Chuck Missler in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, the times they are changing as far as uh, the issues that we're facing right now. Um, you know, sometimes we have to look back at some of the people who've had a big impact over the last 20 years or so that at different times of our life have been important to us. And realize that there's a time and place for different serpents that are called that strive with the challenges that are there. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm finding there are all sorts of new challenges in understanding 
who has the white hats, who has the black hats today, mm-hmm. uh, where is evil residing, where is it pushing, and, and there are new voices today that are better grasping some of that kind of stuff, and that's not yes. to disparage him either. It's just that uh, some of these things become more apparent, and uh, to be honest, too, you and I, we did not pick up the comment we didn't about pick it up until we went on the playback. Till we yeah. were playing it back after we finished recording the show. Mm-hmm. We were doing it to try to figure out some of our editing, and that's when we heard the reference in there. Yeah. And um, That was a showstopper. And I don't even remember if we mentioned it on the regular daily radio show, whether we mentioned the reference. No. Because we, I know, uh, you know, when the one that goes on the Internet, we take a lot of that stuff out, our, mm-hmm. our comments. But uh, I was uh, I was a little surprised, too. Uh, yeah. By it. Not only that, but but the fact that, that Jerome Corsi was also mentioned in it. And that was the thing that really, really floored me more than anything. If there was one person who should have a have a handle on meeting behind closed doors and the potential dangers of it, yeah, uh, it would be Jerome Corsi, I yeah. would think. Yeah, he stood against it. And um, to be fair, when when they said back to their old CNP days. Um, we don't know how long ago that was. Yeah, that, so he might have been there with it, it, Stan Monteith or something. In fact, I'd like to talk to Jerome Corsi directly and find out some more uh, more about that. Uh, regarding Dr. Monteith, since you mentioned him, if you look on the web, you'll actually see his name listed on there as well, too, which just seems so crazy given that his whole life has been spent fighting the New World Order, secret organizations. And uh, I tried to do what the Bible says to do, which is to talk to people directly about things, and I contacted him. And... Um, he told me that at one time, a long time ago, he was involved, but that it became, and I, I don't think he might be sharing with this since I think it, Ooh, it Stan helps. Mon- we're talking yeah, about Stan Monty. I think it helps exonerate yeah. him. Uh, he, he, he said that it became sort of a push for one political party as opposed to certain uh, religious values, and he got out. Hmm. Uh, he, he, I caught him at a, a bad time as far as to elaborate. He didn't have time. So I'd maybe like to talk further about that. But, uh, well, um, he's honest about it, I guess. Yeah, and uh, we don't want to disparage anybody unfairly on the show. Uh, we walk, it's almost like walking a minefield on, on these issues because yeah. we're talking about people who are brothers and sisters in the Lord that have done much for the Lord. Uh, we're, we're having these same questions about this group. And, and one thing that amazes me, just this week, we're getting all sorts of emails from people with the same question Yeah. about this group, whether it's the money they have or, or other issues. So, ladies and gentlemen, all I can say is that there's not hardly any other shows I know about other than ours even talking about it. You maybe know, a few, and none of them on regular radio. But maybe we could all compare notes and get to the bottom of this. We yeah. we hope to be able to cover it more. Yeah. You know what I find ahead. interesting is that I always, uh, you know, we always always pray a little before the show, and oftentimes the prayer is, you know, I really want the Lord to be in this, and I come out with some expectation about what the Lord is going to do, and mm-hmm. it turns out to be something completely different. You know. You're right. Like uh, uh, getting on uh, Colette, you know. Yeah, that was right. a total. Right, she came in at the last minute. Yeah, one of our best shows. One yeah. of our best. Yeah. Uh, responded shows. I have a just a couple of little. Yeah, let's do We're coming up to the end of our show here. Mm-hmm. Let me just mention that uh, Justin uh, emailed and said, "Doctor Future and Tom Bionic, uh, I'm listening to the show with Chuck Missler. This is an, another view. Uh, it's so encouraging to hear him speak and share his wisdom. I like the point that he made about seeking the Lord for direction as to what we need to do individually concerning these perilous times ahead. Well, that's good advice. I also enjoyed Movie Night and Time of Fellowship at the Anchor. Oh, great. And he rec- recommended we look into getting William T. Still as a guest, mm-hmm. who has actually starred in some uh, some stuff with Chris Pinto and also Bill Cloud. And he prays. He says, thanks, and I pray for the Lord's will for you guys. Justin, thank thanks, you, brother. Justin. Uh, yeah, you know, I would like to point out that we're doing Movie Night again. On 27th? The 27th of September. At 6 p.m. at the Anchor? At 6 p.m. at the Anchor. 
and I will try to update the website yeah. on oh. that. Well, thank you. Let me sneak in one little quick one here. Yeah. Uh, this was an, a follow-up from, from Brother Dave. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, uh, Dr. Future, thank you for your prompt and detailed reply. I emailed him uh, with comments. Um, sort of, uh, I must say I'm somewhat relieved to hear your thoughts on the issue and did not wish to offend. Uh, he says, I've been the last couple of years trying to look into the Christian world in a deeper manner and figure out what it means to be a Christian. Um, and he says, uh, sadly, I have far to go in that respect, but God's blessings and daily reading of the scriptures encourages me, and I can only hope that in some way I uh, can do his will and be a good example for Christ. And he goes on, he said, he mentioned, uh, he found out from Future Quake by appearing in the Darkness Radio. Oh, Big radio, got an MP3 player, uh, and, and then from there found out about us. And so, um, just want to appreciate you so much. Uh, he's calling from the Overland Park, Kansas area, which if I remember has a really nice race course, uh, For uh, road, road, race, course? road racing track oh. there. He says, uh, I'm encouraged that you're going to effort to interview members from the CNP. We'll pray for your success and wisdom in this matter. He Thank says, uh, it's rare to get an opportunity like this from someone in your position. I pray that your honest, respectful, and delving questions can be a benefit of the body of Christ as we strive to reveal the truth and expose the darkness. May God mm. bless you in your task. Uh, and he's putting this up on a message board. Yeah. You know, for all we could have on our show, and we're, we're going Thank over time here. Thank you so here, much, Dave. These guys preach much better than we do. Yeah. It's the end of the day. Well, so we need to get Merv in. Merv, won't you tell more of our wonderful listeners how they can let us know about how to get a hold of us? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We're way over. Any last words? Let's get out of here. Okay. Thank you. God bless you, everybody. We've got a great show next week. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Sayonara. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake.